I hope everybody's had an opportunity to look at the Bible Project video. It's so good, and just it's worth reminding yourself. And this week, we come to the last in our series on Ezra. It's Valentine's Day, and I'm sure in the next few minutes, you're going to wonder how we ever picked the Scripture that we're going to be reading today, but this is the Scripture that falls on this day. And we've put communion here for a very important reason. Today's Scripture is a tough Scripture. I would just ask you to be patient. As we go through our series um, on rebuilding and renewal, we're getting to this last Sunday in Ezra. And what we're going to do today is look at this tough Scripture. We're going to look at square in the eyes. We're going to take five other really important Bible stories. We're going to listen to the words of a contemporary prophet, and then I'm going to make a bold claim about Jesus' love. And so bear with us. Stay with us through the journey. We've got, a, we've got quite a ways to go, but I hope that this is going to be a, a kind of a great moment for you, a moment of realization. And I've been praying that God would bless you with what He has for us in this Word today. So let's get into Ezra chapter 9 and read it together. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord, our God, has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, and He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands. Of we, you gave us through the servants of the, the prophets when you said, 
The land you are, your land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people, by their detestable practices. And they filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance." What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. And then we go on into, the, into chapter 10 of Ezra, a couple of passages from chapter 10. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right, we must do as you say, but there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshalem and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Okay. Is there something a bit off in this? Is there something a bit off in this? We're talking about rebuilding a renewal, and our theme today is going to be true love. It's Valentine's Day. Why would we not? But something is off here. And when we read a passage like this, often questions come to mind, things like, what, is God a racist? Does He condone racism in His people? Are the, the, this just sounds off to us. There's a clue here that God is, um, that the actions of His people are not quite in line with what He intended. Firstly, the story ends abruptly, just after a list of all the people who um, had married foreign wives. Secondly, we understand from the later story that not everybody sent away their foreign wives. You can hear about that in the Bible Project um, video. Thirdly, there's Jonathan and his cohort who actually disapprove of this. And, at, and also, there's a whole biblical tradition that we're going we're gonna to dive into just now, which speaks against what's happening here. So, Oftentimes, we'll read a Scripture, and we'll, we'll have a sense that something is off. Sometimes that's because something's off in us. Sometimes that's because there's a deeper truth that God is communicating to us, but we need to take that step back. As the Bible Project likes to say, that the whole of the Scriptures contained in the Old and New Testament are a unified narrative that lead us to Jesus, a unified story that lead us to Jesus. Now, as we go on into this, I just want to note something in passing that we will come back to. When we are afraid, we can do bad things with good intentions. 
the the um, what's the the road to hell is paved with good intentions is a is a kind of um, a pithy proverb. It's not. It's it's one of those things that reminds us that just because our intentions are good, we may still end up doing the wrong thing. And a reminder that sin itself is just missing God's purpose for our life. It's not necessarily moral evil. It's not doing things in the way that God would want us to. So I want to put that marker in here. The other marker I want to put in is to ask the question, was there a danger? Now, for the generation that had come back out of that second exile, the reason they'd ended up in that second exile in Babylon was because of the unfaithfulness of their grandparents and great-grandparents. Pre-second exile, Israel had got up to all sorts of bad things, both the ten tribes of Israel in the north and Judah and Benjamin in the south, and had been carried off in exile. It was very clear this was as a result of the, the, there were blessings attached to keeping the covenant, and there were curses attached to breaking the covenant. Because God had a purpose for this people, and they were blessed in order to do that, but they forsook time and time again that calling. Even though there were faithful people, there were good people, there were, there were people who followed God's, um, God's purposes for them, and there were various renewals, including that late renewal in Judah and Benjamin around Jerusalem of Hezekiah. But we're going to leave that to one side. So there was a danger. There was a danger that, that, is, that this remnant that were coming back to Jerusalem would once again start doing the things that their forefathers and mothers had done and get lost in worshiping other gods and practices that were, that were um, barred by, by God through His love and grace to, Jeruse, to, to the Jews. He had different intentions for them. So there was a real danger. But Ezra does something wrong. In fear, Ezra listens to the leaders of the people. If you go right back to the start of Ezra chapter 9, it's the leaders of the Jews who approach him. But he just listens to the people. And if you read Ezra 9 and 10 carefully, at no point does God affirm what he is about to lead the people to do. And so he listens to human fears, but doesn't listen to God. And yet, through this passage, he starts to ascribe this breaking up of interracial marriages and the sending away of foreign wives, of foreign husbands and children. He's, he's doing that. He's, he's uh, proposing that as if it's God's will. Right. This is tough because his prayer is full of repentance and a desire to do good. We can see in Ezra those things that we might find um, uh, admirable, that, that he wants to do the right thing. He, he is aware of the danger. He, he is desperate to do the right thing. But in his desire to do the right thing, I think he goes astray. It's worth saying that there's different ways to interpret this, but I think he goes astray. And this is the danger of every holiness movement. Now, we need holiness. Jesus calls us to holiness, and we're going to say a lot more about that later and how that happens. But holiness movements themselves can quickly descend into do this, do that, that if you obey the rules, 
then you'll be fine. Or some of you will remember some of the restrictions around Sundays. Don't go to the cinema. You know, don't uh, don't go shopping on the Sabbath. Uh, in the islands, they would uh, they would cook their Sunday joint on a Saturday and have cold meat on a on a Sunday if there were so there was no work done, no washing done on the Sabbath, things like that. And that's fine if you're doing that to honor God. That's great. We all know the story of Eric Little and his refusal to run in the 100 meters and then getting gold in the 400 meters um, at the Olympics. And that's a wonderful thing. But when that turns into us frowning on our neighbors and judging others, then we find ourselves in the place of the Pharisees who were the renewal movement of Jesus' day. And all the way through from this time to four or five centuries before Jesus, all the way forward to the Pharisees and even forward to this day, there's always a danger that holiness movements become judgmental and the energy is put into judging others who are not observing what we think is the right thing to do instead of us allowing the Spirit of God to work in us. So there's a, there's a danger there in holiness movements that it becomes all about external observance and not internal transformation and restoration. Now, let's look at five stories in the Old Testament that Ezra would have been aware of. He would have known these stories well that illustrate God's approach to non-Israelite Jews. Now, um, before we go into this, there's plenty of tradition that talks about obviously when Joshua and the, the, children, uh, the children of Israel make their way into Canaan. Um, there's a lot about cleansing, and there's a lot about clearing out the land. There's a lot about that, and I don't want to deny that exists, but there's a strong tradition in the Old Testament Scriptures that speak about God's approach to non-Israelite Jews that speak against what Ezra and the people here in Jerusalem, the gathered exiles that have come back from Babylon, that, that they've, got, they've got this wrong. So here's the first story. And this story is about Hagar and Ishmael. This goes back to Abram and Sarah, who have become Abraham and Sarah. Uh, the promise is on them. God's made a covenant with Abram. He's promised that his uh, descendants will outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore and the number of stars in the heavens. He has promised that he will become the father of a great nation. But Sarah and Abraham are getting impatient with good reason. Sarah's getting old. Abraham's very old. And so Sarah, in a practice that was common in that day, but which is a bit shocking to us, gives Hagar, his, um, her servant, to um, Abraham as effectively a concubine, as a second wife. And through that union, Ishmael is born. But when Sarah becomes pregnant, we know she's going to become pregnant with Isaac, she's filled with jealousy because Abraham's eldest son is now the son of her servant. And she forces Abraham, who's weak about this, to put Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert, into the wilderness, as will happen with the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. But that's, a, that's an echo for another day. He puts them out, and he puts them out to die. Let's be clear about that. This is an unrighteous thing to do. And just as he puts out his firstborn into the wilderness to die, so God will make sure that the son of the promise, who's the son that he will have with Sarah, will be put up to die on the mountain that, 
Mount Moriah, where the temple, where Jesus is um, put on the cross. I mean, there's, there's so many links here. We could be here all day. But know this. God in His mercy rescues Hagar and Ishmael. I've said this before. One of the most amazing paintings up at Arniston House is of the angels ministering to Hagar and Ishmael. It's a wonderful big painting um, in what we tend to use as the dining room for, uh, for our Alpha Away days. Incredible painting. And that painting speaks of God's mercy to Hagar and Ishmael. Now, the Arabs and, and, and the whole of Islam see their roots in Ishmael. Um, this has been a troublesome history uh, for the Jews going forward, but God had mercy on these non-Israelite people because He loves them. That's the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Here's the second story, Joseph and Asenath. You may not know about Asenath, but Asenath was Joseph's wife. And Asenath was an Egyptian. You remember the story of Joseph? Um, brags to his brothers. His brothers gang up up and betray him, lie to their father he's being killed. He's carried off into exile in Egypt. And there he rises in a kind of wiggly line, eventually ends up as um, second in charge in the Egyptian empire under Pharaoh. But in the in the Old Testament annals of the tribes, because there should have been a tribe of Joseph, but it tends to be the tribe of Manasseh or Ephraim, which are Joseph's sons. Why is this? Because Asenath was an Egyptian. Now, on the one hand, Joseph is kept out of those lists because he met on Jew. But it's fascinating that these two characters, Manasseh and Ephraim, interchangeably are used as the, uh, as the patriarchs of one of the 12 tribes, even though ethnically they were half Egyptian. And they are maintained. It's not 11 tribes of Israel. It's 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, later we'll see that that name Joseph is restored, but give me a moment. So there's the second story. Egyptian mother, but Manasseh and Ephraim are seen as being part of the covenant that God has made with His people, not just accepted, but fully integrated into the history of His people. Here's the third one. Now we move forward to the time of Moses, and the 11 plagues have happened, and Pharaoh has not let the Jewish people go. And Moses brings word of the last and most terrible of the plagues, the firstborn of the cattle and of the households, the firstborn sons, will be put to death as a kind of, um, as a mirror of what Pharaoh did to a generation of boys of whom Moses was the only survivor when he committed genocide against the Jewish people. Because he was fearful that God was blessing this slave people who initially were not slaves in Egypt, but were enslaved by the Egyptians. And the Passover is the gathering of the family to put to take a lamb, a slave family, to take a one-year-old perfect lamb or a goat, to, to butcher it, to put the blood on the lintels and the, on the wood in the sign of the cross, to consume the whole of the, of the lamb, to eat it with unleavened bread, which they were making to pack in their knapsacks so they had plenty of food in their knapsack, head out into the desert, for God was going to set them free. And there's an amazing passage in Exodus 12 which illustrates how every Egyptian could have avoided the death 
of their firstborn. And here it is. This is from Exodus 12, verses 48 and 49. This is right in the instructions that, are Mo- that Moses gives for the observing of the Passover that he brings direct from God. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must of all the males in his household circumcised, which of course is the sign of the covenant given to Abraham. Then he may take part like one born in the land. Do you hear that? That act of obedience incorporates them into the Jewish people. No uncircumcised male may eat it. In other words, if they haven't done that, then they can't do this. That same law applies to both the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. To the foreigner residing among you. I guarantee you, well, Ezra knew this Scripture. We'll get to that. So that's the the third story. So here's the fourth story about Ruth the Moabite. Ruth who was married to a Jewish lad whose family had moved from Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there was a famine, to Moab, one of the most hostile people groups um, against the Jews in the ancient world. And Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite dedicates herself after the death of her husband and her father-in-law and her, um, her, her brother-in-law as well, to care for Naomi. Naomi is so crushed by the, the deaths of both her sons and her husband that she renames herself Mara, bitter. You can read this. It's a 15-minute read. Ruth, four chapters of it. And Naomi says, there's nothing here for me, and returns to Bethlehem which is going to feature in the story, is it not? And as she returns to Bethlehem, Ruth goes with her, and she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In that incredible statement, and just like the males who were circumcised who could come into the covenant at the Passover, so Ruth dedicates herself to the care of Naomi. And as a result, she catches the attention of Boaz, who is the second in line to take Ruth on as a wife, as was the, as, as was the case in, in Jewish law. We won't go into that just now. And so Boaz makes sure that the next in line gives up his right and his duty really to take Ruth and Naomi into his house. And Boaz takes Ruth into his home and Naomi too. A wonderful character of Boaz. And through this, Ruth and Boaz have their son Obed, And Obed has a son called Jesse. I hope you're watching, Jesse. And Jesse has a son called David, King David. Ruth the Moabite was the great-grandmother of King David, the reestablishing of whose kingdom was seen as being the coming of the Messiah to these people. Fourth story. Here's the fifth story. Now, Just before the Israelites were carried into exile, some decades before that Jerusalem and the first temple was destroyed, the northern kingdoms were carried away, and a prophet to the northern kingdoms was the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah and those prophets in his tradition, because there was a whole family of prophets, or Isaiah lived an incredibly long time, they have a vision of a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. 
a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. This is just before the exile from which Ezra and the Israelites are coming back from. And I want to read this to you. Now, I want you to notice one thing. It is multi-ethnic. It picks up other nations. Interestingly, it picks up eunuchs um, who are people whose um, hormonal development was interrupted. And uh, we could have a long talk about that in terms of issues around our times. We're not going to do that today, but I just want to make that note. But these were people who were hormonally altered in their day, often to serve in, in high office. It's a multi-ethnic kingdom, but it's not a pluralist kingdom. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. So, Isaiah's vision of the kingdom is full of every tribe and tongue. We'll come back to that phrase later. But it's not full of every belief system. These are people from every tribe and tongue who come to recognize that the God of the Jews is the one true and living God. And that's really, really important. As we as Christians would think back to, to John 14 where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. However that's constructed and however Jesus' grace reaches out to people, it's not a pluralist kingdom, but it is multi-ethnic because every ethnicity, every people group, every culture has unique um, wonders in it of God's creative grace. Let's read this together. This is Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. Oh, I haven't put it up. I've got it here printed. Sorry. Right. You can listen to me reading this. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what's right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. How about that? I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, just like Ruth binds herself to Naomi, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of those you know the cleansing of the temple. You know Jesus quoted this, a house of prayer for all the nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. What a Scripture. What a Scripture. What a Scripture. There's, an, there's one of Isaiah's visions of a multi-ethnic multiracial gathering of people to worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. 
And Jesus, of, oh, there's another way we could go down. Jesus is talking about this just before his crucifixion and just before the good news of Jesus will be shared with people from every part of the Roman Empire, Jews from every part of the Roman Empire in their native tongue. But we can't go there today because we need to go down another line. So here are these five scriptures. Ezra was an expert in the law of Moses. And so the story of Hagar and Ishmael and God's mercy to them was known to Ezra. The story of the inclusion in the very giving of the practice of the Passover, of the way for foreigners to enter into the covenant. He knew that. He would have known that by heart. And he knew about the fact that Asenath's sons, Joseph's sons, were included in the covenant as Manasseh and Ephraim. He knew the story of Ruth. He longed for the reappearance of the Messianic king. And he knew that Ruth was a Moabitess and was great-grandmother to the great King David, which would have made him a 16th Moabite, right? And he knew the prophecies of Isaiah, of a multi-ethnic, though not pluralist, kingdom of God. And yet, even knowing that, even knowing that, he decides to go with the call of the people for the breakup of these multi-ethnic marriages for fear that it will corrupt their observance um, of the Jewish law and their life as a Jewish nation. Such a shame. If that wasn't enough, God sent him someone else. We've already talked about Haggai and Zechariah. They came up as, as Ezra. They were encouraging Ezra with the Word of God and the people as they continued the building of the temple. We spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. But there was another prophetic voice who's a contemporary of Ezra's who says this. This is Malachi, the very last book. Remember, there's three big prophets. There's 12 minor prophets reflecting the three patriarchs and the 12 tribes of Israel, literary ninjas, as, uh, as Tim Mackey will say. In Malachi, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he writes this. This is a contemporary voice speaking to Ezra. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Do you, just, do you hear that? It's like mind-blown. Malachi is speaking into their situation, and he is saying, along with Jonathan and his friends, and he's saying, along with the story of what happened with Hagar and Ishmael, what happened at the giving of the Passover, what happened with Joseph and Asenath and their sons, what happens with Ruth, what happens through Isaiah's presentation of a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. Here is Malachi adding to that saying, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Says who? Says the Lord Almighty. And Ezra hears the leaders of the people and goes through with this plan to break up families when actually God is calling him to stand firm 
And instead of the Jewish people just reflecting the wickedness that was around them in the world, that they were given opportunity for those who didn't know the God of Israel for themselves and say, you become part of our people. You become part of our people. Surrounded by all of this evidence and God's heart for the non-Jews, He still falls back on isolation, which as I've said, there's some Scripture to justify this, but there's a deeper truth, a deeper reality that He is missing here. Not only that, but Ezra makes this mistake because the true danger that faced the Israelites was not from the other nations. The other nations would get on with their lives. The danger that they faced was not the external threat of the practices of other nations, but it was the rebellious hearts of their own people who are tempted away from being faithful to God. The issue was not primarily external. It was internal. They needed a renewal of heart. As Jeremiah says, they would need a new heart. As Ezekiel has said, they need a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. They need God's Spirit, God's Ruach, God's life to live within them. The problem was not external and the Pharisaic blaming of the rest of the world. It was internal where we, we understand that judgment begins with the house of God. We've got to get ourselves straight. It's so sad it's so sad. Friends, we need to heed this carefully. As we gather in communion today, we need to understand that even in these times of lockdown and coronavirus and whatever, the danger that we face is not primarily external, it's primarily internal. And we must be careful when we act in fear for all fear, as Jesus' best friend John will remind us in his letter in 1 John 4, has to do with judgment. Fear flows from a fear of being judged. And how many of us are worried about what our neighbors think, or worried about what the community thinks, worried about how we might appear when God is calling us to a deeper truth, to be Jesus' love, His hands, His feet, His mouthpiece, in the midst of a world that's lost its way and is locked down, is suffering and hurting. If you're out there and you're struggling just now, hear this. Jesus loves you, and by His grace, we love you, and He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And we must be careful that our external observance and our fears around that does not cause us to be lost in judgment of others, whether they're wearing a face mask or whether they've washed their hands. And we need to get back to the understanding that we get our own hearts right with God and we get on with doing the good things that He has placed before us to do. And as we gather in communion today, we can judge the world around about us or we can realize that the rebuilding and the renewal, don't judge me for my spelling mistake, starts with us internally. That if we're going to see uh, that God's love, His kingdom established and growing here, revealed to those around about who are wondering what life's all about, and it starts with us internally. It starts with the work inside our own hearts and minds, that, that God would give us a spirit not of fear, 
but of courage, strength, and a sound mind. To quote another of the minor prophets. Okay. Now, I made a promise to you earlier in the series that we had jumped over in Ezra chapter 6, the observation that the, of the Passover, that the way that they, they celebrated the rededication of the completed temple was to share the Passover. We've already mentioned the Passover. It's Communion Sunday. Passover is a great place to go. So at the completion and dedication of the temple, the, the Jewish exiles celebrate the Passover. It should have been a time of great union. It should have been where Zerubbabel had welcomed the help from the local Jewish people, many of whom had intermarried. If only he'd incorporated them in, it would have been a much more unifying experience. But we'll take it at face value, and we can read this together. This is from Ezra 6, 19 to 22. On the 14th day of the first month, and friends, on the 14th day of the first month, Jesus gathered in the upper room. Okay, this is the month of Nisan, like the car, but with one less S. It's New Year, Jewish New Year. And by the way, it's also Chinese New Year. Thank you, Sonny, for the feast that you dropped down for us. And God bless to Helen and Lucy, anyone who may be celebrating Chinese New Year at the moment. But this is where the Jewish New Year is in the month of Nisan. And on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. Are we hint there that now they are starting to see that they need to incorporate those who are faithful, but maybe not of Jewish origin? For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. Who? The king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. That's Ezra 6. Here's the irony. Because of God's work in the life of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the temple was rebuilt. Jerusalem was resettled. God loves Gentiles. This is a quote from Isaiah 60, which just resonates through the whole message today. Nations will come to your light, writes Isaiah. And again, Ezra was aware of this. And kings to the brightness of your dawn. In other words, the God of the Jews will have the kings of the nations, the queens of the nations come to Him for wisdom. Now, at Passover, at Passover, we see in Exodus 12 that all nations are invited into the covenant to worship the God who overcomes slavery and death. And we know slavery to death, slavery to sin, slavery to fear, slavery to this worldly concerns, and ultimately each one of us will know death. And Jesus deals with that. And the Passover speaks of that. And the Passover is the feast which Jesus takes and reshapes into this communion with and for His friends in the upper room 
and you and I. That's what Jesus does. The communion, the work of the cross is primarily to liberate us from death. And it's the cross, Jesus' enthronement at the cross, crowned with thorns. It's the cross which is the means by which all nations come into that covenant. And you can see the cross two ways. You can see it as a parody, as, as the delusion of the Jewish authorities have their Messiah put to death, and as the callousness of the Roman Empire representing the power of the world sneers at Jesus and, and has Him put to death just because it is convenient. But actually, it's the cross is the enthronement of Jesus before the nations. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to me, Jesus said in John's gospel. It's the cross which is the means by which all this is made possible. The cross that Jesus faced as He transformed Passover into communion. And it's the cross that is the greatest expression of love and holiness in all history. Right. We're getting there, I promise you, but it's worth it. Stay with me. It's worth it. Now, friends, holiness matters. Let's just say this. Holiness matters. It matters. That I mean, Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you in Matthew 28, as important as go make disciples of all, of all creatures. You know, go out into creation. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Great Commission. And teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. Holiness matters. But remember this, only Jesus at work in us by His Holy Spirit can overcome the world, the enemy, and ourselves. The three evils that we face. Only Jesus at work in us can truly do that. That was the renewal of heart that was needed and that everything good in the Old Testament that was done, was done in Jesus' name, was put on the credit card for the cross, and we are now given the credit card to spend. That's kind of how the cross works, is that what Jesus has done is, yes, He's dealt with sin and death, but He's also released the power to be restored and transformed. Holiness matters. Holiness does matter. Love matters too. Or in cold thinking, well, in cold, holy observance, we will continue to repeat Ezra's mistake. We will tut at people's wrongdoing. We will judge them for their misdeeds instead of opening the heart of God to them in love and in forgiveness. And Jesus does not want us to do that. Now, I said to you I was going to take us through five biblical stories, another proclamation, and a bold claim. I hope you're listening, because this is it. In Jesus, holiness and love are one and the same. Jesus' holiness is Jesus' love. John will say in 1 John 4, God is love. Love is preeminent. But understand this, Jesus' holiness is His love. When He calls us to holy living, when He judges our, um, 
our pride when He cuts our unbiblical cords, where He deals with a brokenness. It's out of His love that He does that. Sometimes I think we, we imagine that God's, that, that, well, does God love me at the moment or is He judging me in His holiness? Oh, I don't know. We get lost. We don't know what to do. And then sometimes, oh, well, kind of God loves me, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it matters. It matters a great deal because God's holiness is His love. Jesus' holiness is His love. They're one and the same. They're incorporated together, just like the bread and the wine incorporated in one body at the communion. Do you hear me? It's one and the same. It matters that we're set right. We do not want the kingdom of God to be full of bitterness and rage and injustice and hatred and abuse and addiction. We don't want that. We don't want death in the kingdom of God. We want those things dealt with. And Jesus at the cross gives us the greatest statement of love and a holiness. They're one and the same. One and the same. Jesus' holiness is Jesus' love. In Jesus, they are one. Just like His divinity and humanity, in Jesus, they are one. Jesus has that effect that He takes things that in our experience are separate, and He fuses them together. And yes, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, His love is preeminent. But there is no love without holiness. Holiness without love is worthless. It's a clanging gong, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 13, or a squeaking gate, as Eugene Peterson will paraphrase that. And love without holiness is just sentiment because it cannot restore or transform that which is broken and rebellious and has turned its back on God and is less than its intended self. And love and holiness come together in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. True love and holiness are enthroned in Jesus, and that Lamb has a throne. Yep, we're going to go there. We're going to go there. Here's Revelation 7. You can read this with me, and if you can read this with me without choking up. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, and then there's a list of every tribe, every tribe of Israel. 144,000 from Judah and from Benjamin and from Issachar and from Zebulun and Naphtali, 144,000. And that's, you know, it's 12 times 12,000. Well, don't worry about the symbolic numbers at the moment. But look what he says about the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. In John's vision, the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim are restored. And it's from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. Joseph who married the Egyptian. It's good enough for God. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And then, of course, as that revelation vision stretches out into the reunification of heaven and earth and the restoring of the new heaven and the new earth, then John sees this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a, as a bride. No divorce here, but marriage as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, which is the church, which is that multi-ethnic kingdom of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, open brackets of every tribe and tongue, and He will dwell with them. Amen. 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 They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. And He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, friends, I don't expect you to remember everything that I've said today. I don't expect you to. You may need to go back and listen to it again to, to, to take this on board. But what I want you to have deep in your heart is that God's attitude towards you, Father, Son, and Spirit, is always love, and that contains His holiness, and that in Him rests the power to restore and transform. In your life, in my life, in our life as a church family, or whatever church family you're part of, in your life if you don't know Him yet, and in the life of our communities. That vision, get, just get caught up in the story, and then go back over it, see if I'm right. Get caught up in the story, because we've gone from thousands of years past to whoever knows in the future, although this is for us at the end of our days. And I'm calling us to this as we gather around this table. Friends, this Valentine's Day, this Valentine's Day, may you know that the author and the source of all true love is Jesus, that His invitation to that wedding at the end of time is for you and for yours. This Valentine's Day, may you know that the author and source of all true love is Jesus and that there is a seat at that table for everyone who puts their trust in Him. Nobody turned away because of their genetics or their background. This Valentine's Day, know that the author and source of all true love is Jesus. And we are not divided by our differences, but we're united in His love. This Valentine's Day, know that the author and the source of all true love is Jesus. Now let's gather at His table together in Him as one. Amen.